in Acts chapter 21, if you'll remember with me from last week, or I'll give a, a quick summary, Paul has been on several missionary journeys. And this last time, he's been all the way to present-day Greece and north of there in the Eastern Bloc Europe area by Philippi. And as he's traveled all the way back from the southern tip of Greece there in Corinth, he's traveled in what I would call the planes, trains, and automobiles. The plane, isn't it called planes, trains, and automobiles? The movie with uh, the guy, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so he's making this planes, trains, and automobiles trip back from Corinth. And as he's on the way, I say that because he goes in several modes of transportation. He walks, he takes boats, um, his life is threatened. He stops and stays with individuals that he's impacted over his years on missionary trips. And as he does this, he ends up finally, last week, back in a place called Caesarea on the lower right-hand corner of this map. And as he stays there, he stays with a man by the name of Philip. Now that would mean nothing to us except we looked at in Acts chapter 6 that Philip was one of the deacons of the early church. He was one of the, the seven that were chosen to wait tables. And oftentimes we look at people that wait tables, you know, we tip them, hey, they don't make much money. But they're the kind of people that make the world go round, if you think about it. People that serve other people are the ones that deal with our everyday needs wherever we're at. There's always someone serving someone. And, and Philip was a, a good picture of this because though we don't see him a whole lot in the Bible, he's one of those unsung heroes of the scriptures. He was one of the early deacons in the church. Didn't mean that he made all the decisions like some churches. It meant that he literally would distribute food to people that didn't have any. And so God had used him in that capacity. And then he took him up to Samaria at the beginning of the book of Acts. And he preached Jesus to the people there in Samaria who at the time were not in favorable conditions. They, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And so Philip was taken up there because of persecution in Jerusalem. And while he was there, he wasn't just good at serving tables, although that was his skill. That's what God had called him to. But he also understood who Jesus was and who he was in the light of what Jesus had done for him. And so he proclaimed Jesus there in Samaria which is kind of in this area here. And then the Lord, after doing basically like a Billy Graham style evangelistic outreach, the whole city, multitudes, believed in Jesus. Then the Lord gave him a different calling. He called him to the desert in Gaza. Now we hear about Gaza on the, on the news all the time. There's still bombs being lobbed back and forth. But at that time, there was no one there. It was a desert. And when Philip was called out there, he was called there because the Lord wanted to reach one person. And that was a eunuch owned by one of the big dignitaries, the, the queen of Ethiopia. He actually had charge over the Ethiopian leader's money. So there was a lot of power there. So Philip shared the gospel with this person. He was riding in a carriage and the Lord said, overtake that carriage and I want you to speak to that, that Ethiopian eunuch there. And he was reading in Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering Messiah. And he asked Philip, he said, who's this talking about in Isaiah? Is this about, is Isaiah writing about himself or is he writing about somebody else? And so from that scripture, Philip explained to him that this was Jesus Christ. 
Several hundred years in advance, God through Isaiah was pointing out that the Messiah that came to Israel would suffer and even die. But he wouldn't claim his rights. He wouldn't try to get away from suffering. He would willingly give up his life for the sake of others, for the sake of the whole world. And so Philip was this man of faith that many people don't know about. But in the midst of that, after he's in the desert there in Gaza, he ends up in Caesarea. And we don't hear much about him until years later, when Paul's on the way back from his third missionary journey, he lands there in Caesarea, and he stays at a house of a man named Philip. Philip, by this time, has four virgin daughters. They had gifts, they had the gift of prophecy, and God was using them. And what is interesting to me, and I kind of came to this conclusion as I was teaching last week, was that Philip knew Stephen, who was one of the other seven deacons in Acts chapter 6 and 7. But Philip was good friends, had served with Stephen, who Paul, when he was a Jew and when he was persecuting the early church, was actually there on the day that they stoned Stephen to death. He was holding the coats of those who killed Stephen with rocks. So you know that Philip had heard about this. And yet by the time Paul has been saved by grace, He's been on all these missionary journeys. He's no longer an enemy of Philip. And Philip doesn't hold that against him. He lets him stay in his house where his daughters are. He recognizes that the work of Jesus is not just a theory in the life of Paul. It's changed him. He's a different cat. And so he stays with Philip there in Caesarea. And then after he stays there, they tell him while he's staying there, hey, don't go to Jerusalem because chains and tribulations await there. And Paul says, why are you crying? I'm willing to die for the cause of Christ. This is what God's given me to do in my life. Don't, don't be hurt my feelings here. Just let me go. And so that's where we find ourselves this week. Paul is finally getting ready to go to Jerusalem. Even though he's been warned by the Holy Spirit in every city, he's been warned. Chains and tribulations await you there. And Paul said, none of these things move me because I don't count my own life dear to me because I want to finish the race that God's given me with joy. And for Paul to finish his life with joy, knowing he had done what God gave him to do, meant that he was going to have to give up his rights. It might cost him his life. It might cost him his freedom. He's going to be put in jail. And so Paul knows this ahead of time. He's counting the cost. He recognizes that to be a, a Christian is not just to sit on the sidelines, but to Take hold of what God gives you to do and do it no matter the cost. And so Paul continues this week in verse 15. <clears throat> they had kind of begged him. They said, don't go to Jerusalem. And so when he told them, hey, I'm going no matter what, in verse 14 it says, when he would not be persuaded by them, we ceased asking him not to go, saying, the will of the Lord be done. So they said, hey, God's will be done. And so, verse 15, it says, After those days, we packed and we went to Jerusalem, and also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain disciple by the name of Manasseh of Cyprus. He was an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. So they were going to stay with this Manasseh in Jerusalem. Verse 17, And when he had gone, excuse me, when he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. 
So on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul finally, after tons of time of travel, says that from the time of Passover all the way to the day of Pentecost, he finally gets there. And when he gets there, it says, the brethren, the Christians there received him with gladness. And then the day after they arrived, they actually went to speak to the leader of the Jerusalem church. Now, there are some churches that believe that Peter was the first leader of the Christian church, that he was the first pope. But just with the cursory reading of the book of Acts, the first leader of the church there in Jerusalem, it seems, was James, the writer of the epistle of James. He was the half-brother of Jesus. The, the half-brother of Jesus that didn't even believe Jesus was Messiah until he died. James, he's the leader of the first church. So I reject that Peter was the first pope or even the first leader of the church. It seems to me that James was. So on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and the elders were present. So all of the church leadership of the Jerusalem church were there. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he shares with them, here's all the things that God has done. But he doesn't just share with them what God has done in ministry, but he shares the fruit of it. Remember, Paul had gone to all these churches in Achaia, in Corinth, in Macedonia, in order to gather a free will offering from those churches that had been planted there. He was bringing money back because the church in Jerusalem didn't have anything. They'd been persecuted. Many of them couldn't get jobs because they were Christians in a very Jewish area. And so Paul, knowing this, tells all the brothers and sisters out there, hey, they're in a hard way. They need something. Can you give them what you have to give? And they said, absolutely, no problem, sounds great. So they gathered, recognizing that everything they had was the Lord's anyway, recognizing that if it wasn't for the truth, the church in Jerusalem, they would have never heard the gospel. They were like, hey, everything we have is the Lord's. We love them. They've sent you to us. So here's some money. And then they sent some representatives with them to make sure that that money was spent properly. They held them accountable. So as they arrive back in Jerusalem, Paul not only tells them what God is doing in all the churches, but he gives them an example of how that truth of Jesus is working out because they go, hey, not only are they loving the Lord, but they love God's people. Enough to give of themselves, to give out of their Abundance, some of the churches were rich, and to give out of their lack. The church in Philippi gave more than any of the other churches, and they were the poorest of all the churches. But when Paul writes to the Philippians in the book of Philippians, he says, you guys have no need that I should tell you, because you have great joy because you're willing to give of yourselves to the point that it hurts, because you know your inheritance isn't here, but it's in heaven. You're storing up treasures. You're building up the body of Christ by giving to others even though you don't have much. It's kind of like the widow when she went to the temple to make her deposit, if you will, to give to the Lord. The 
Pharisees and all of them that were giving to be seen by men, they're giving way more than she did. But this poor widow, she walks up and she just puts in like two cents. And everybody's like, well, that's not much. But Jesus pointed it out. He recognized not only what she was giving, but the heart behind it. And Jesus said, that woman, though she's only given a little bit, she's given everything she has. You guys gave out of your abundance. She gave out of her lack. And so these churches are giving because they have a love for the brethren. Let me tell you that one of the signs of a true believer, a true Christian, is that they have a love for other Christians. Warts and all. (laughs) Warts and all. Because none of us is perfect. None of us has it all worked out. If we did, the Lord would call us home. So the reality is to love the body of Christ, it's a beautiful thing. But it's a hard thing because it always costs. Those churches out there were learning that. To give of themselves. To give freely. Nobody asked them to. And when he brings the thing back, Paul's able to tell them they're believing the gospel and they're living it out. They recognize that Jesus didn't have to give them anything. And so when they recognize their salvation is something God's given freely, they want to give freely too. And so they bring this offering back to the church. And it says there, when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. They glorified him. They worshiped him. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. Kelly, would you mind grabbing me a cup? I'm sorry. So the early church, they approach, they say, this is what God's doing in all the other countries. And then James speaks up. He says, you see, brother, how many myriads, in other words, look at the multitude of Jews who have believed in Jesus Christ. Now they're in the, basically the center of Judaism. They're in a culture where they're surrounded by, thank you. They're surrounded by Jews. Many of them were there. They were the ones rejecting Jesus when he came. But here we are almost 30 years later, and there's a multitude of Jews who have received the gospel. They're willingly saying, Jesus is our salvation. So James writes to them, there's a multitude, and you see them, who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake or to turn away from Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. So they're going to give them a prescription. They're going to give Paul a prescription to deal with this little possibility of a of an argument. Paul's been teaching Jews, you're not saved by your works or by following the law, but you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Lest anybody should boast about them being righteous in the sight of God because what they've done. The idea is, is there are a lot of people, and you probably know some, you might be one yourself, who like to weigh their good works with their bad works. And they put them on a balance scale. They say, well, 
I've done this many good things, even though I've done this many bad things, so it outweighs, my good outweighs my bad. Well, that's not how it works, because if you do one bad thing, James says, if you've broken the law, even on the smallest point, then you're a transgressor, and you deserve death. Now, we don't like to say that, because it, it implies that what we have to offer God isn't good enough. But the reality is, is it's true. There is no good work that you can do in this life that will save you from your sins. We all have them. We all need to deal with them. Now, <clears throat> that's in our culture. But in Judaism, in order to be right before God, Moses had given them this law. Now, we know them as the Ten Commandments. But if they expounded on them and came up with 613 of them. Now, 613 commandments is good, except they couldn't even keep the first 10. And so adding more rules doesn't make it easier to live by the law, does it? We know that from our own law. As they write more laws, it becomes more and more difficult not to break them. But the law of Moses was never meant to prove that people were righteous. The law of Moses was supposed to be like your bathroom mirror. You'd have it on the wall. You get up in the morning. It's all over the place. You're not happy with it. And so that, that mirror proves what you kind of already knew. I wonder if I need to fix this up. Now, <clears throat> I many days don't look like I fix it up. But this is my best attempt, okay? But when I walk into the bathroom, if I look into that mirror and I recognize that there's something wrong with it and I want to fix it, but then I walk away from the mirror without doing anything, there's no point in looking in the mirror, right? The law of the Old Testament was never supposed to prove anybody was righteous. The Jews said, we got the law, we keep it to the T. But if they really would be honest with themselves, they weren't keeping it to the T. Even if they dealt with all the outward stuff, many times some of them would do like you and I do during the Christmas ads. We go, man, I need that thing. Or see someone else having something, we go, man, it'd be really nice if I could have that. Well, that's coveting. That's breaking the law. And even in that law, we fall short. And the penalty for breaking the law is our sin separates us from God. So the law was never supposed to prove we were righteous. As a matter of fact, as we submitted ourselves to it, as the Jews submitted themselves to following that law, it was supposed to prove to them that they couldn't do it. That God's standard is too high. I can't meet it. I need a savior. I need somebody that, that can stand in the gap and can live that thing out for me because I can't. Well, the reality is, is that nobody can fulfill the law completely except one person. And that's Jesus Christ. He came, he lived the life that we could not. In every way, he never once broke the law. And yet... He died the death of a sinner. He was put on the cross with false charges that he had broken the law, that he had spoken against the temple, that he had spoken against the law of Moses. But did he ever once say, no, I didn't? No, he never defended himself because he said, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. See, he wasn't deserving of death. But he chose to allow his life to be killed so that you and I could receive the free gift of eternal life by trusting in his blood shed on the altar, 
by trusting in his life given up for the penalty of sin. So we, by faith, put our trust in him. We no longer have to do all these good works to earn our salvation. We're freed up to do whatever we want to worship God. But here's the reality. When you realize how much you've been forgiven, nobody has to tell you to try to please God. You want to. Has anybody ever done something super nice for you? And you, you can't help but want to go, hey, I want to do something nice for you now. Well, how much more so when Jesus Christ dies for us, not deserving it. And so Paul, <clears throat> recognizing this, he's been teaching the Jews, you don't have to live by the law anymore. If you don't want to circumcise your kids, whatever. That doesn't get you to heaven anyway. What gets you to heaven is faith in the Son of Jesus, it's Son of God, Jesus Christ. You no longer have to do anything. You'll want to if you recognize what he's done. So Paul, they give him an ultimatum. They say, hey, there's lots of Jews here that think that you're telling everybody not to follow the traditions anymore. And they're a little bit, they're a little bit bothered by that. So what are you going to do? Well, we've got an idea that might settle the rift between you and the Jews. If you will do this one thing, so he gives it to him in 23. He says, therefore, do what we tell you. There it is. Here's what he tells him. He says, we have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk accordingly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from eating things that were strangled to death, and from sexual immorality. So he says, here's what you can do. These Jews, they think that you're teaching against the things that they're doing. Now, they're trusting in Jesus, but they still like to go to the feasts. They like to circumcise their kids to show that they're set apart. So in order to make a concession, we don't want you to deny Jesus. We want you to go into the temple. There's these four guys that have taken a Nazarite vow, and they're doing it, not because they have to, but because they want to. So to kind of bridge the gap a little bit, why don't you pay their expenses to make this vow? Okay, so that makes no sense to us because we come from a culture. What do you mean you're taking a vow? Are we not supposed to make a vow before God? Let our yes be yes and our no be no? What they're doing is a Nazarite vow. There were people in the Old Testament that had done this. Uh, John the Baptist, Samson, and uh, Jesus Christ. From the womb, they're born, and they are not to take of the, the uh, fruit of the vine. In other words, not to be drinking. They're not supposed to be uh, get their hair cut, and they're not supposed to be around dead bodies. And this is just to offer their life to the Lord and to be set apart and clean. But here's the deal. There were some that would take a short-term Nazarite vow as a thank offering, just to, just to worship the Lord and say, my life that you've given me, it's yours, Lord. And I'm going to take this time, I'm going to give up some of my liberties in order to worship you. And so they would abstain from drinking anything or eating grapes, anything from the fruit of the vine. 
They wouldn't get a haircut. As a matter of fact, they would start the vow by cutting their hair. And at the end of the time, they would any hair that had grown during that time, they would cut it off and they would burn it on the altar as an offering to the Lord saying, everything about me that you give me, it's yours. And then they would, even during that time, if some, they had a loved one that would pass away, they couldn't be in the funeral because they would have to stay away from the body. They were just saying, Lord, I trust you with everything. It was just a way to worship God. Paul had just taken one of these vows on his second missionary journey. He was just thankful for all the ways that God had blessed him and, and kept him alive because he had been stoned even near, near death and many believe that he was stoned to death. And so these men have taken this vow. He said, just prove that you're not speaking against the law of Moses. Pay these guys offering. Well, at the end of this Nazarite vow, it wasn't just about cutting your hair and burning it, but you would also make an offering before the Lord, a sacrifice of a... Uh, there were certain animals they would sacrifice. There were certain grains they would sacrifice. But in order to do that, you're basically burning any food you might have. Well, these men are all from Jerusalem. They don't have a lot of extra. So they didn't have what it took financially to pay for stuff to just burn it. They needed it for food. He's saying, so just pay for their offering. Pay the fee so that they can offer to the Lord that which they desire to do, even though they don't, even though they don't have it. And Paul does it. Now he's been teaching everyone, you don't have to live by the law to be saved. But he does it for these men to prove not so much that you are saved by your works, but to prove that he's willing to give up his rights in order that some of them might see that he serves the Lord and he's willing to give up his own rights to kind of bridge the gap. I hope that makes sense, but Paul's not exercising his liberty in order to stumble somebody that's kind of used to their traditions, but he's kind of laying down his, his uh, normal rights to say, okay, I'll do that for the sake of love. Does that make sense? So he says, and then it says there in verse 25 through, uh, 20, well, verse 25, that they're not calling the Gentiles to start living by the law, but these are just Jewish men that are doing it, that believe in Jesus. So while he's doing this, we need to keep in consideration 1 Corinthians chapter 9 because I believe that this is Paul's heart behind making this concession. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, Paul writes there to the Corinthian church. He says, For though I am free from all men, in other words, I'm, I'm the Lord's, I don't have to answer to anybody. Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I, might be, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, those that were, grew up where they weren't in a church or in a Jewish background. Those who aren't without the law as without law, but not being without law towards God. In other words, lots of Christians, and maybe you haven't heard this, maybe you have, will say, well, they'll, they'll start to compromise. And you'll ask them, like, hey, why are you hanging out in these certain places that are obviously sinful? And they're saying, well, I'm just becoming all things to all men so that they'll know Jesus. But while they're in those spots, they'll start to compromise. They'll start to sin. They'll start to get involved in things that are ungodly. And what Paul's saying is here is, though I'm becoming like Jews or I'm, 
you know, being around Gentiles, even though the Jews wouldn't be around Gentiles at the time, it's like they almost saw them as having, you know, some sort of uh, sinful cooties. They wouldn't get around people that were not like them. Paul's saying, I, I would be around them, but I wouldn't partake in things that were sinful that they were partaking in. And so he says there, he, he did it for this reason, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. In other words, he's making this concession not to sin, but so that there are many people that if he doesn't make this little change, then they won't listen to him. They won't receive Jesus because he's unwilling to compromise a little bit. And so Paul, <clears throat> he's doing it for the sake of love. And we see this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love on nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. If I do all these outward things, but I'm doing them for the wrong reasons, they don't profit me anything. They don't show the heart of God. And so Paul is willing to lay down what he typically would die on that hill. He's going to make a concession here. He says, okay, I'll pay for their vow. So back in Acts chapter 21, verse 26, it says, Then Paul took the men, the next day having been purified with them, he entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. Now when he was in the temple, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him. Paul's minding his own business. He's in there making an offering for himself and for those men that he's going to pay for them to make their vow complete. And while he's in there, there were some Jews from Asia. That's important. They were from the place of Ephesus. And seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd. They laid hands on him and they cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, meaning against the Jews, against the law, and against our temple. Now, none of these things are true, but this is what they're charging you with. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So these Ephesians, or these Asians, from Ephesus there, have come to Jerusalem to worship. And they're Jews. They don't believe in Jesus. They're just Jews. They're not Jewish Christians. I'm trying to keep that straight. So Paul had no doubt come into contact with them in Ephesus. And he had led many of the Jews to the Lord. So when they all come back over here to Jerusalem, these Jews that are there to worship see Trophimus from their town, who is a Jewish Christian, 
and they are themselves Jews, and they say, hey, wait a minute, Paul knows Trophimus. Trophimus is in the inner court of the temple, and he's not supposed to be there. Picture it this way. The temple is one building. It's just a square building where only the high priest would go in to make offerings. The Jews would never go in there, just the high priest, just the Levites. And then on the outside of the temple, around it, kind of like a moat, but not a moat, just an outer court, that was the place where the Jews were allowed to go in and make their offering. And then on the outside of that, there's another fence around it, a big wall called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, anybody who was not of the nation of Israel was not allowed in there. Anybody that was not a Jew was not allowed inside the court of the Gentiles. They had to stay in their own area. So if one of them would go in, there was a sign over the door. They would have to walk under it to go in. And it said, anybody that comes in here that's not Jewish understands that they're taking their life into their own hands. And it was in multiple languages. So everyone would know, if you go in here, it's punishable by death if you're not a Jew. So they went in there. They went in there willingly. Trophimus just so happened to be in there. Paul didn't take him in there. But because Paul knew him, and the Jews from Ephesus knew that Paul and Trophimus knew each other, they made the assumption that Paul brought him in. Assumption is the lowest form of communication. You've heard the phrase about assuming, and I won't say it. But the reality is, is many times, because we make assumptions about people, People we know well. People we know that we know what they're thinking or what they're doing or why they did something. We make assumptions and then because of those assumptions we try to put them to death. Now we may not try to kill them but we will try to assassinate their character. We'll start talking about it. Assumption is the worst form of communication because it's not communication. We need to be careful about that. But Paul... They make assumptions about him, and because of that, he gets chained. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, they chained him up, or they started to beat him. They saw that he had brought a Greek, or they assumed he brought a Greek, into the temple. And they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed, they didn't know, they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was disturbed. And the people ran together. They seized Paul. And they dragged him out of the temple. And immediately they shut the doors. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now this commander worked for Caesar. He was there. These soldiers were there to keep the peace. And they would send more soldiers in during the time of these feasts in order to keep the peace. So this commander sees the uproar and he sends in soldiers. And it says there in verse 32, he immediately took soldiers, the commander, and centurions and he ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. In other words, just their presence there kept Paul from being beat any further. And then the commander came near, they took him, and they commanded him to be bound with two chains. 
And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some of the multitude, they cried one thing and some the another. In other words, just like Jesus, when he was bound, taken into Jerusalem, put to trial, what happened? They started to accuse him of things that weren't true. And none of their stories lined up. They, did, they were trying to accuse Jesus, just like they're trying to accuse Paul. And while they did that, none of their stories matched up. That's kind of the mob, the mob mentality. So Paul here is being accused. They put him in chains, which kind of fulfills the prophecy that Agabus said in the beginning of this chapter. If you go to Jerusalem, chains await you. You're going to be chained. You're going to go through trials and tribulation. Paul, knowing this, was okay with that. He saw it coming. Well, the Lord saw it coming and warned him. So, when he could not ascertain, meaning the commander, he couldn't tell the truth because of the tumult or the chaos, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after him, crying out, away with him. So just like Jesus, Paul is in Jerusalem and it's not going well for him. His life is being threatened. They want him dead. They don't want him in jail. They want him dead. So <clears throat> verse 37, as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? Paul's not saying, hey, let me go. He's saying, can I talk with you for a minute? So this Roman soldier, this commander, he replied, he said, can you speak Greek? Now, what in the world? What do you mean, can I speak Greek? What does that have to do with anything? Well, he's asking him this because this thing that Paul's going through has happened before in Jerusalem. There was a man, an Egyptian, who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and he led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness. They had come into Jerusalem to the Temple Mount and said, hey, we're going to take over. So when the commanders of the garrison came out, they, they gathered them all together, these assassins, but the leader got away. So they're making the assumption, this is the guy that we couldn't catch before, and he's back. So they said, can you speak Greek? Because that guy could speak Greek. And Paul responds, he says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, Cilicia, which was the region, a citizen of no mean city. Now that mean, that word doesn't mean an angry or a mean person or a mean city. It means an average city. He says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no average city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So he's number one telling them, I'm not who you think I am. And number two, he's telling them, without really telling them, I'm a citizen of Rome. You just chained me up, and I'm a citizen. You never even checked into it. See, these guys can go to jail themselves for chaining a citizen of Rome. They have rights. Paul never once said, let me go, I got rights. What he did was he said, can I speak to you? And then he said, can I speak to the people? Verse 39, Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, of no mean city, and I implore you, let me speak to the people. Let me speak to them. Now, I wonder if the commander was like, do something, get them to settle down. What in the world? What did you do? And I'm assuming that he made the assumption 
that if this man spoke and cleared the air, that the chaos would stop. Now, we'll find out later that it didn't. It actually kind of made it worse. So verse 40, when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and he motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. Paul stood up. He didn't complain. He wanted a platform through which to speak to this multitude. He wanted to clear the air and he wants to give his testimony. See, these Jews are aggravated with Paul because Paul loved the Jews, but he also loved the Gentiles. Now, they were fine with him loving them, but to love the Gentiles was kind of like spitting in their face. So they were tired of it. So they wanted to get rid of Paul. And Paul basically says, let me speak to you for a minute. See, Paul knew that when he went into Jerusalem, that he was going to be chained. But he also knew that God had called him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of God for the world. And so Paul didn't care that it might cost him to get chained up. He saw his chains, his being put in captivity, as an opportunity or a footstool, a soapbox, if you will. Hey, if I'm going to be chained, I may as well use it for God. And in Philippians chapter 1, he actually expresses this heart. Go to Philippians and then we'll close on this note. He writes the book of Philippians years into his imprisonment because his being arrested here is just the beginning. Because for the next five years, and many believe for the rest of his life, he'll be in prison for the gospel. But Paul recognizes that even if he's in prison, God can use that. And uh, can you imagine being a Roman guard chained to Paul the Apostle just for four hours at a time? He was relentless. He, he preached to everybody he met. And so Paul, he writes to the Philippian church to encourage them. And they were concerned because he'd been put in jail. How's Paul going to be used if he's in jail? But then he writes to them in first, or excuse me, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, meaning my chains and my imprisonment, the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains, Rome didn't chain me, I'm chained for the sake of Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Because I've been chained, because I've been put in prison, and I'm still bold in the midst of imprisonment, there are many other believers that have come to be because of my chains. And later he'll write to the Roman church, not the Roman Catholic church, but the beginnings of the Roman church. He'll write to the believers there expressing his heart for them, how he longed to go see them. Many of them came to believing in Jesus Christ because Paul, in the Roman prison, met all these guards, shared Jesus with them, and when they got off duty, went to their families, went to their friends, they shared the news of Jesus Christ in Rome, and many came to believe. And so that's how the church started. It started because Paul laid down his rights and he went to jail for the sake of the gospel. 
He allowed God to use what we would consider the worst thing in the world, basically his life and his freedom taken from him. He allowed that to be used for a pedestal for him to speak about Jesus. And that's what he's going to do next week. As he speaks to these Jews that were trying to kill him, he's going to preach Jesus to them. He's going to see it not as a hindrance, but as an opportunity. And many times I think that we have hindrances in our life, not because they're actually hindrances, but because we're, un, we're not looking for how God wants to use it. Many times people are chained to a job because of debt. Many times people are chained to a way of life because of something that's happened down the road. But what we need to look at is not the impossibilities or the doubts or the fears, but we need to look at every situation we're in, good, bad, ugly, and otherwise, as not a bad thing, but remembering that God uses all things to work together for the good of Him, for the good of them that are called according to His purpose. Because though Paul's going to go to jail, God's purpose isn't that the gospel would be chained. It's that the gospel would be furthered. So what is it that you go through or that you're going through right now that seems like a prison rather than an opportunity? Maybe we can take a note from Paul and see that even the worst things that happen in our lives, the things that go very wrong, can be actually an opportunity rather than an impossibility. And as we go through the Christmas season and we see the things that happen to other families and even our families, maybe we could see them not as an opportunity to be downcast or feel like God's forgotten us, but to see it as God's allowed this. Why is he allowing it? How does he want to use me in the midst of this circumstance? So let's pray. Father, thank you that Paul really, as he lives his life, is living it, and he's imitating Christ. And Jesus Christ saw the opportunity to prove his love to the world and that while we were still sinning against him, Christ laid down his life willingly so that we could be set free. Thank you for Paul following that example and willingly laying down his rights so that even the people that hated him, his enemies, he, he showed them that they weren't enemies of his, that he loved them and was willing to lay down his rights so that they might just hear the gospel message and be given the opportunity to receive Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Thank you that Paul wasn't just going to teach them this as a theory, but next week as we study, he's going to even explain how God did that in his own life and how he's not the same because of it. Father, give us a heart not only to to be like Paul and lay down our rights, but also help us never to be silent about the things that you've already done in our lives. Help us to remember your mercies and then to tell others, that I was once lost, but now I'm found. And this is specifically what Jesus has done for me. Forgiving my sins, redeeming my family, giving me a job here or there, you know, provided for us our daily needs. Not, all, not always our wants, but definitely, Lord, you provide our needs. So, Lord, help us to see this Christmas season, though it's very traditional and many times you get forgotten in the midst of those. Lord, help us to point other people that maybe don't know really what it's about. Help us to point them to you. Help us to take advantage of the fam family gatherings. 
Help us to take advantage of the, you know, the having to work overtime on the holidays, if that's the case. Help us to tell people that our hope is not in our tradition, it's not in our perfect situations, but our hope is that Jesus Christ is our Lord and anything that comes into our life has been allowed by you, Lord. So Lord, show us what you want to use these circumstances for. And Lord, in the midst of that, help us to give you the honor and the glory that you're due. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Paul's example. Help us to be an example and an inspiration to others. In Jesus' name, amen.